What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and welcome to season three, a.k.a. the season break I had to do because I moved to another country, so I needed time to fly over here, and boy, are my arms tired. Anyways, I'm back and extremely invigorated for season three. I've got so many plans, you guys, so many schemes and machinations, you just have no idea what you're in for. But anyways, today on the show, we're talking about creatures who spit in the face of gravity. These critters laugh at the general concept of physics and take things to an extreme level, defying gravity, shrugging off space flight, and being extremely improbable in general. Notice how I've carefully avoided saying that we're only talking about animals? I'm sure that won't be relevant later. And of course, at the end of the episode, I will reveal the animal behind the mystery sound from last week and the winner of the first ever Guess Who's Talking contest! It has no prizes, no rewards, except feeling smug, which I think is actually a pretty good reward. Being smug is good. Joining me today to talk about physics, gravity, and the animals who scoff at the cosmos is particle physicist and co-host of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Daniel Whiteson. Hi, I'm here to defend gravity against <laughs> scoffers and everybody who is smugly ignoring it. <laughs> Daniel Whiteson, attorney at law, coming in to defend gravity, to object. Real heavy mood in the courtroom. That's right. You know, gravity is unionized. They are organized and effective wow. and coordinated. And I'm here to speak for all of them. Well, dang. <laughs> so welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to have you on here today uh, because we are talking about gravity and the animals who just think it's no big deal. And in fact, later on in the show, we're going to talk about animals who are actually in space or have been in space of course, they had a little help from us humans, but it's still very interesting how they adapt to space, something that they have never had to deal with until we intervened and decided, hmm, let's just let's just put you in space, little fella. See how you do. Well, you know, physics isn't just here to constrain you. Physics isn't just here to say what you can't do. Yeah. We also do physics so we can learn how to manipulate the universe and how to use it, bend it to our will to accomplish our goals. So physics is also a helping hand sometimes. Exactly. I mean, in fact, the first little creature we're going to talk about uses physics to its advantage. Actually, I should say the creatures we're going to talk about. because we're going We're going to talk about wall crawlers. So you know that Spider-Man can crawl up walls and mess with the multiverse, but real spiders and geckos and other arthropods can crawl up walls and mess around with the universe on the atomic scale. So have you ever wondered how a spider or a gecko or other little wall crawlers manage to climb up on a straight vertical, like they can go right up a wall, even up glass, which seems pretty slippery and hard. I've, I've tried and it doesn't work for me. 
I have a really fun mental image of you trying to climb the outside of a skyscraper. Listen, you know, you never know whether you can do it until you try at least once. And I got maybe <laughs> two hands on there and then it didn't keep working. But I'm not a gecko or a spider. Who'd have thunk it? So, well, that's how you found out, right? Maybe you exactly. were secretly a gecko or had bitten by a, or had been bitten by a radioactive gecko and you wouldn't yeah. have known. Gecko woman. That's a good one. That's uh, a, <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah. And then I'd go around and then I'd use my uh, razor sharp reflexes to thwap my tongue out at criminals. That's a, that's a great superhero. We should write for Marvel. I bet Marvel already owns that IP. Ah, uh, probably. They've just taken every animal and plant and fungi and like added man or woman to the end of it and copyrighted, copyrighted, copyrighted. <laughs> so nobody can do anything anymore. So the ability of spiders and geckos and other small critters to ascend walls is thought to be primarily through van der Waals forces. So Daniel, you probably know how van der Waals forces work. As everyone knows, Vendor's walls, you climb up them. <laughs> uh, that's right. Vanderwall's forces is a force between atoms and molecules named after a Dutch physicist, Johannes van der Waals. And, you know, I think it's funny how van der makes something sound like, you know, fancy or, you know, pretentious or whatever. But in Dutch, it just means like from the, yeah. you know, it's like uh, Daniel from the Irvine or something. <laughs> <laughs> Lothar of the hill people. <laughs> the same thing in uh, in Italian, you know, Da Vinci. It's like he's just he's from from Vinci. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No big deal. It's like his address, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, Van der Waals forces are these forces, uh, you know, between atoms and molecules. They can help hold things together. Um, they're kind of weak, though. They're not like as strong as the electromagnetic force. And they fall off very quickly with distances. Like, you know, if atoms are too far apart, they basically don't feel the van der Waals force at all. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, you don't, as a human, really feel van der Waals forces. Like if you put your hand on a wall, you're not necessarily going to feel like, oh, yeah, I'm getting sucked into this wall because they're so weak. Uh, they're unlike other bonds between two atoms, like... Uh, if two atoms share an electron or have oppositely charged ions, it forms a much stronger bond. But the van der Waals forces are these kind of, it's a very mysterious, very gentle force between two atoms. Uh, of course, you know more about it than I do. Only one of us is a particle physicist. <laughs> I, I hate to put you on the spot here, but how do van der Waals forces work? Like, how, why would there be this very weak attraction between two atoms or, or also very weak uh, repellent between two atoms. Yeah, well, van der Waals forces are interesting because there's something we call a force, but you know, they're not like fundamental force of the universe. Like in particle physics, we think about electromagnetism and the weak nuclear force and the strong force and the force of gravity. These are the ways that particles can repel or attract each other. The van der Waals force is something else. It's something that we've like found through experiments or that van der Waals found through experiments. It's sort of like an emergent force. It's like a combination of all these things together has a sort of an overall effect. And, uh, you know, it has also to do with like how the objects repel each other. It doesn't just attract. It sometimes can repel each other uh, because like two atoms have electron clouds. And when those electron clouds get a little too close to each other, they don't like necessarily to overlap. And so those electron clouds can like repel each other a little bit. And so it's something that like emerges from lots of little effects altogether. And are these, uh, are these like quantum or subatomic effects? Like how, how tiny are we talking about? Like at what level is this interacting in the universe? Yeah, it's uh, something that only really makes sense to talk about between atoms and molecules. So if you get down to like the tiniest little particles like quarks, they don't feel van der Waals forces against each other because it's something that only sort of makes sense uh, when you're talking about atoms and molecules because it's an emergent phenomenon. It's something that only arises at that scale. Um, sort of like the way, you know, ice cream it doesn't make sense to talk about like an ice cream particle. There's no particle of ice cream. But ice cream is a thing we experience and we enjoy in the universe. It's something that comes together from other smaller pieces. Sounds like somebody's never had Dippin' Dots. 
<laughs> Dippin' Dots are not made of fundamental particles of ice cream. Really? Mind blown realization. I don't today. know. I don't know about that. That doesn't sound right. I know you're a particle physicist, but there are some things you don't know. Well, uh, you know, I actually did build a Dippin' Dots collider. We smashed Dippin' Dots <laughs> together, very high energies. And we look, we have the data, okay? Um, and the Dippin' Dots company is going to come after me for doxing them here on the podcast. But no, Dippin' Dots are just ice cream in another shape. Ah, well, I would <laughs> sign up for being a volunteer at that collider. Let those Dippin' Dots collide right with my mouth. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because it's such a weak force. It's it's weaker than static electricity where, you know, if you rub a balloon on your head and you have that electrostatic force of it like clinging to your head, it's like that doesn't feel that strong, but it's even weaker than something like that. So. It seems odd that this could be used by something like a spider or even a gecko, which is relatively large when we're talking about atomic forces, to crawl up a wall. But indeed they do. And the way they do it is just by the power of large numbers. So one kind of like little connection between two molecules uh, through van der Waals is not very strong. But if you multiply that by millions suddenly you actually have something you can work with. So with spiders, uh, who are adorable and cute and we love them, uh, if you look at their little feet uh, on a microscopic level, they have a bunch of little hairs, nearly a million little tiny hairs on these feet. And they're so thin, what they're able to do that say like a human hand can't do is make contact really close with the surface that they're walking on. So because they have these hundreds of thousands of little hairs on each little tiny leg tip, uh, that those little teeny tiny, like you can only see them under an electron microscope hairs, brush up against that surface and each one experiences very weak van der Waals force. And then you add that up to 600,000 Suddenly, you've got a spider who's got amazing miracle sticky feet. It's like if you take a spoonful of Dippin' Dots, it actually tastes like a spoonful of ice cream. Exactly. So many tiny little explosions going on in your mouth. And you take a spoonful of spiders, it's going to taste like a spoonful <laughs> of spiders. Have you done that experiment? Uh, Are you just speculating or do you have data? <laughs> In fact, the cumulative force of these tiny hairs on the spider feet are so strong. They are pound for pound much stronger than Spider-Man himself, a very real person. So the adhesive force of 600,000 spider foot hairs, all taking advantage of Van der Waals forces, allows the spider a grip of 170 times its own weight. So that's like if Spider-Man could crawl up a skyscraper while carrying two horses. And that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I can't carry two horses across a flat surface, not to mention up a skyscraper. Shamefully, I can only carry one horse. <laughs> so it's the same thing with geckos. Have you ever seen a gecko foot? We used to have a gecko in my family. It was our oh, first really? failed experience of having a pet. <laughs> They are One day, the creatures. gecko was not just walking around anymore. Yeah. Yeah, they're very sensitive. They're hard to take care of. I had a crested gecko in college. I don't think I was supposed to have a pet in the college dorms, but we had a crested gecko. Very cute. We fed it baby food. Uh, I don't know if that was the best baby thing to feed food? it. Baby food? Like for human yeah, babies? Mango. Yeah, man uh, it was like a mango baby food and supplemented with the insects we found in our apartment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Did a bunch of college freshmen go to the grocery store shopping for gecko food and not find any? And they thought, well, they could probably eat baby food. Yes. Yes, that is what happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't find any like flies or worms or crickets well, at the grocery store. We, we just had plenty of abundant pests in our apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did mix the, the uh, baby food with, I think, some cricket powder. So really lovely smell that we had going brewing in there. Real, real nice kind of um, home cooking that college freshmen did. <laughs> but we actually, we actually took pretty good care of it, uh, all things considered. 
Uh, but it was a very, it was adorable little thing. In retrospect, I probably wouldn't recommend them as pets just because, you know, it's it's uh, really hard to take care of something like a gecko. And it's also hard to determine whether they are like ethically sourced. So, but I was just a dumb college freshman. So what did I know? But its little feet were so interesting and it could crawl up vertically on walls. It could really grip to you. It could just crawl up your arm. Um, and uh, the, the crested gecko actually is a really good jumper. So he could jump from one hand to another person across the room. It's very impressive. And its little feet were really interesting because they look like Ruffles potato chips. They have these mm -hmm. little ridges all over it. And when you zoom in with a microscope, on each ridge of this gecko's foot is millions and millions of little hair-like structures called setae. And each of these little hairs, again, tiny microscopic small hair, branches off into even teenier, tinier nanoscales called spatulae. And these are so tiny and delicate when they touch a surface like a wall or even a pane of glass, just like the spiders and arthropods we talked about earlier, they make very close contact with the atoms of that surface and they experience van der Waals forces. And so, like the spiders, they, by having millions of setae, millions of these hair-like structures and double the number of the little uh, spatulae, the nanoscales that are on the tips of the hair-like structures, they are able to get a pretty strong grip just using van der Waals forces. Uh, and which to me is kind of incredible how it, it boggles my mind from an evolutionary standpoint because it feels like, sure, as you know, someone really smart, like a physicist, could come up with, hey, let's like, we could take advantage of van der Waals forces by having a bunch of teeny tiny hairs and multiplying them by a million and we can run it through a computer program. In fact, I think there are some researchers who have made robotic geckos using artificial setae. Ooh, um, cool. Very cool. But like from an evolutionary perspective, like how many little steps you have to go through before kind of happening upon like, oh, these little tiny hairs on my feet are sticky and they stick to walls. It's it's crazy. It's amazing. And how many walls were there that these like ancient geckos <laughs> had to scramble up to avoid predators? Did they like, you know, run up prehistoric glass walls yeah. inside volcano shafts or something to avoid predators? Why do you I even mean, need this crazy skill? Have you seen dinosaurs, the 90s sitcom? They had houses. <laughs> Um, I do think it's super awesome, though, because it reveals to you a layer of the universe you don't usually see, that these yeah. surfaces that you think are super slick microscopically are fundamentally different, right? They have all sorts of interesting like wiggles and cracks and texture to the surface that if you understand how to take advantage of it microscopically, you can do things that macroscopically seem impossible. And I think that's a cool lesson, you know, that that understanding how things work microscopically is actually important. And that the way things look is not the way things actually work. Absolutely. And I jokingly kind of frame this episode of like animals who defy physics, but really <laughs> they are using physics to their advantage. Physics is a neutral force, neither good nor evil. Um, well, it's undefiable, I... right? Like you can't <laughs> defy physics. Like, that is no, true. Not like that some body true. of law that's going to come strike you down. You just like, you can't. You know? Yeah. Um, what unless if you're in I... a science fiction novel. What if I say pound sand physics? Is that defiant <laughs> enough? Well, you're using physics to scream your defiance at physics. Oh god, so my brain. Really, you're compliant. You're blowing my you're blowing my brain. <laughs> um, but yeah, so new research indicates that geckos might use, in addition to Van der Waals forces, another molecular force up their sleeves, static electricity, which I talked about earlier as being a stronger atomic force. Um, so researchers at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, gave a bunch of geckos Teflon foot massages to measure the charge of their little feet, which sounds like the most adorable research I can imagine. Like they just like gently rub these little gecko feet against the Teflon to measure the charge. 
Uh, and they did, in fact, find that their feet were positively charged and the Teflon was negatively charged upon contact. So uh, that, that difference in charge creates an attraction. And just like, you know, when you rub a, rub a balloon and your hair all sticks up and, uh, you know, it's uh, somehow these geckos are able to take advantage of two forces, both van der Waals and the static electricity. That's pretty amazing. Good job, geckos. See, they are masters of physics. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're basically tiny little physicists or engineers. I'm not sure. Move over, Daniel. Let a gecko take your job. <laughs> but I'm climbing the walls already over here. <laughs> <laughs> but this doesn't yet disprove that van der Waals forces are actually the primary uh, method for geckos to climb walls because geckos can actually mm. climb up straight surfaces underwater where they can't form these electrostatic connections like the, the static electricity connections. So while the static electricity may help them, it mm -hmm. seems like it's more of a situational thing. Like if they can form a static charge against the surface, they, they do, and it probably helps them, but they don't appear to need that. They still rely on this you know, very weak force that they just uh, multiply by a million. So gecko research is like an active area of inquiry. Like there are people out there writing grants about geckos and yes. raising geckos for research. Is that ethical? <laughs> is it ethical? Well, you know, I think it, it's, that's a difficult question to answer. I think it depends very much on the nature of care that the geckos are mm. getting. It depends on how you source the geckos. Uh, if you're getting them, if you're breeding them in a lab, I don't think that has too much of a negative impact on the environment unless you accidentally release them and they become invasive. So, mm. it, you know, it depends on a lot of factors, the ethics of geckos. But uh, regardless of the ethics, we have shot geckos into space. These are just oh, the no. facts. <laughs> regardless of the ethics, whatever you say after that makes me cringe. <laughs> I think the geckos need a union and they need representation. Right. It sounds like nobody's really thinking about what the gecko wants in these experiments. Daniel Whiteson, attorney at, at the law of physics <laughs> here to and uh, geckos. Rep and geckos. <laughs> so on board the BION M1 unmanned spacecraft, there are a bunch of Turner's thick toed geckos uh, or there were, I, I don't know if this is a currently running experiment and they wanted to see the effects of low gravity and, and orbit on re some reptiles, just see how they do. How, how do you like that? On a scale of zero to 10, like how much you like space? Um, <laughs> and these geckos apparently weren't having such a bad time because they were observed doing what appeared to be play in space. So one of the geckos went rogue, it got out of its collar, and because they were in low gravity, the collar floated away and the mm -hmm. geckos started playing with it, like pushing it, kicking it back and forth. One gecko tried to put its head inside the collar. One of them tried to like stand on it. So they seemed to be playing around in space, taking an interest in the bizarre physics of this floating little <laughs> tiny gecko collar. Wow, we are really projecting uh, human mental models onto geckos that we are torturing by launching them into space and then acting as if they liked it. You know, <laughs> look, they're having fun. I mean, maybe they're like panicked and they're like scrambling desperately to get their collar back on. Uh, who really knows? What is it like to be a gecko? What is it like to be a gecko in space? <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't go into space. Would you Would you get on board an experiment to go into space if they told you you could even play games in space? As a human, maybe not. But as a gecko, I think I would because like <laughs> life as a gecko is already pretty perilous. So, you know, being a gecko in space doesn't sound so bad. I can already climb walls. So zero gravity shouldn't be that weird for me. <laughs> I guess I'd rather be a gecko in space than a gecko like trapped in a lab somewhere getting foot <laughs> massages or in some like cage in some freshman dorm or something being fed baby food instead of <laughs> Hey, we were chill. <laughs> we were chill. Gecko paid into the beer the beer budget too, so you know, got to party. So when we return, we're actually gonna talk about even more animals who have escaped gravity by literally being shot into space, the reasons they were up there 
and what they experienced while they were there. Probably some fear. Well, we'll find out. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. So... Daniel, do you know who the first animals in space were? Oh, I know that there was a Soviet street dog that they launched into space. Laika, yes, yes. That's Very. about as far back as my knowledge goes. <laughs> it, that was It's such a tragic story because while it's something really interesting in terms of a um, you know sort of scientific milestone, I have so much compassion for dogs, I can't help but feel just so emotional about that story so so sorry for Laika who must have been so scared because you know as as we know like they were able to launch uh, Laika up into space uh, up into low orbit but when they she came back down the uh, capsule burned up and uh, Laika died which was very sad but what doesn't make me sad is sending fruit flies into space (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> the first animals in space were not cute little dogs. It was not chimpanzees. It wasn't even rats. It was fruit flies. And mm. they returned to Earth perfectly safely, which, great. I don't care as much about the fruit flies as I did Laika. So that's What year are we talking cool. here, fruit flies in space? 1947. What? That's incredible. Fruit flies went to space and came back and and we couldn't ask them about it? (laughs) And with the teeny tiniest of microphones, like, how was your experience in (laughs) in space, Mr. Fruit Fly? It's like, not that much fruit. So I wasn't that interested. (laughs) Um, So the U.S. launched a V-2 rocket from New Mexico with a payload of fruit flies. The purpose was to see how radiation affects living organisms at high altitudes. So, Daniel, you probably know, like, why radiation is more of a concern when you're in space than when you're on Earth. Yes, absolutely, because space is filled with radiation. The sun, for example, is constantly pumping out huge amounts of radiation. 
This means like really high energy particles like protons and electrons, and also just really high energy photons. But this was not something we knew early on. We thought that as you went up in space, the radiation would drop. We thought maybe the radiation was coming from the earth, like Mm. minerals in the earth. And as you went out into space, it would fall off. So people were actually surprised when they discovered that radiation increased as you went up into space. Basically, that the atmosphere is acting as a huge shield. It's like a big wet mattress or something protecting us from all these tiny bullets from space. This atmosphere seems pretty important. Well, good thing we haven't done anything bad to it. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, no, exactly. The sun is beaming down a lot of radiation. You feel it every time you go outside and you feel warmth on your skin. Maybe you get a sunburn. Don't do that. Wear sunscreen from a redhead to you, everybody. Uh, You don't have to be a redhead to need sunscreen. (laughs) Um, But yeah, when you get a sunburn, that is a radiation burn. Uh, and it's a relatively mild one that, you know, over time does increase the uh, chance of skin cancer. But in space, with no atmosphere to protect you, the radiation from the sun can really wallop you. That's right. And astronauts have to be really careful um, because not only is there a lot of radiation, but it fluctuates. Like the sun can basically like burp and emit huge <laughs> amounts of radiation, you know, like these solar flares. They call this like solar weather or space weather. Yeah. And then you can have like much more intense radiation very briefly. And most astronauts in space have like a panic room they can go into that's extra shielded with like lead or something to protect them from these bursts of radiation. Makes me wonder if on the ISS there's like some kind of belch and then someone's like, who burped? And it's like, uh, the sun? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than calling it, you know, the sun's flatulence. So. <laughs> Blame it on the sun, astronauts. <laughs> There's nowhere to hide if you fart in the International Space Station. (laughs) But, you know, actually, space has an interesting smell. You know, when you come in from outer space, spacesuits have an interesting odor because they've accumulated various stuff that's out there and they've been, like, activated by the various um, high-energy particles. Hmm. And so astronauts have reported that once you come in from outer space, they smell this. It sort of smells a little bit like, you know, overdone barbecue Uh, But sometimes if you get interesting aromatics, you can have like smells of raspberries or other weird stuff. Someone's cooking somewhere in space. (laughs) Space Gordon Ramsay yelling at some space chefs. I love it. Yeah. So why didn't those fruit flies go up there and appreciate the raspberry smell of space? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we should have just left them up there. I hate fruit flies. (laughs) I mean, I don't. I don't hate any animal really. But still, uh, when they get on my fruit, it's very annoying. I have a friend who does research on fruit fly brains, actually, and she just kills the fruit flies when she's done. They just, you know, they knock them out with CO2 and just squish them. There's like no compassion there at all. Oh, boy, man. They don't get to retire to a field, like a a farm, a fruit fly sanctuary. (laughs) Here's a banana, one for each of you. Thank you for your contributions to science. Nope. They get knocked out and squished. (laughs) Jeez. Well, speaking of questionable practices towards animals... Uh, While I don't particularly have a huge amount of sympathy for fruit flies, although I do not hate them, I don't hate any insect, they're all very interesting. Uh, In the 1970s, NASA, working with Italian researchers, sent some bullfrogs up into orbit on the orbiting frog otolith satellite to see how they dealt with motion sickness, which... God, I feel so much sympathy for these poor frogs. As someone who has a sensitive stomach and who gets motion sick in cars, if I read for like a nanosecond, uh, this sounds like a nightmare. Well, why frogs? Why would they use frogs? Are frogs particularly sensitive to motion sickness? Well, that's what's really interesting about this. So to talk about why, first... Why is it called orbiting frog otolith? The otolith refers to a structure in the inner ear that allows vertebrates to detect motion and gravity. So in humans and other mammals, otoliths are these little grain-like mineral structures made out of calcium carbonate that are suspended in a fluid. So when our heads tilt back and forth uh, or when we experience gravity on our bodies, Uh, the otoliths move inside the fluid and press on cells inside your inner ear. Like if you have, imagine sort of like a jar filled with little rocks and the jar is filled with 
olive oil or something and you move it around, um, they will respond, uh, you know, not extremely quickly, but gradually will respond to being tilted here and there and, and being dropped on the ground. Um, and so what happens when these, these little grains, these little otoliths uh, move slosh back and forth in your ear, they press upon what are called hair cells. So hair cells don't have anything to do with like the hair on your head. They are mm-hmm. actually slender cells inside your inner ear that connect to nerve fibers and sends information to your brain. So these otoliths form like a little avalanche and press on these slender hair-like cells. And then that sends a message to your brain that, "Uh uh-oh, I'm falling, this is bad. Or you're in a car and you're moving and these otoliths get pushed back in your ear. And if you tilt your head forward, it can give you this sense of falling forward and cause you to become disoriented and motion sick. So I'm imagining like having a cup of coffee in your car and then you hit the accelerator and then the surface of the coffee changes, right? It doesn't just stay flat. It like yes. moves back towards the cup. Or if you hit the brakes, suddenly your coffee flies out of your cup. Yes. So you can like have a little container of stuff that tells you whether you're accelerating forwards or backwards or whatever. So that's what's happening inside our ear. We have like little coffee mugs basically. <laughs> and they're telling us whether they're spilling over or not. And that tells your brain uh, yes. basically how you're being moved. Little coffee mugs with like lumps of sugar in it that slosh around. (laughs) (laughs) So while otoliths function differently in other vertebrates, frogs, coming back to your question, Daniel, actually have a similar inner ear structure to humans. So that's why we shot frogs into space, specifically bullfrogs, because their inner ear mechanism works similarly to humans. Uh, and unfortunately for them, very unfortunately for them. So, uh, <laughs> how did they measure motion sickness of bullfrogs alone in space? Was it little froggy barf bags or a survey? Sadly, no, they used electrodes implanted in their inner ear nerves or vestibular nerves to collect data on the activity of those inner ear nerves. So activity that varied greatly from baseline indicated that the inner ear was panicking and sending frantic messages to the brain about weightlessness in spaceflight in orbit. And uh, because this was very interesting uh, in terms of like, well, what will happen to astronauts that we send out? If we send them into orbit, are they just going to be vomiting continuously, which would be horrible because then the vomit would float away. Uh, and, and, uh, what they found was that after an initial period of the frog ears freaking out that their ears sending these frantic messages to their brain going like, what is happening? They actually returned to baseline. So that indicated that the bullfrogs acclimated to low gravity. And after a little while of adjustment, they're like, this is fine. I'm fine. You know, image of, image of that dog sipping coffee in the fire, except it's like a bullfrog in space sipping coffee, (laughs) going, this is fine. Um, I'm not vomiting, you're vomiting. (laughs) uh, Of course, it becomes a little more nightmarish when you hear about the actual setup of the experiment, because of course they didn't just have a bunch of cute little frogs in little froggy spacesuits, all buckled in, all all cutely. Mm -hmm. The way the frogs were sent into space is a little bit of a kind of black mirror situation for frogs. Their arm nerves were severed so they wouldn't move and so they wouldn't pull out the electrodes and so that they could survive longer without eating Um, because like by severing their arm nerves, it meant they wouldn't move around and they it would slow down their metabolism and they were suspended in water to allow gas exchange and breathing. So like the ultimate sensory deprivation tank, uh, but being shot into space and not being able to move your arms and legs. That's, uh, you know, I- I'm glad I wasn't a bullfrog in the 1970s. Well, we got to find out who that bullfrog's agent was because they really <laughs> fell down on the job. Like, seriously, those frogs need some representation. Yeah. That sounds like a nightmare. Wow. Yeah. And did they, rec- did they survive? Did they come back to Earth or are they still up there at like frozen frog popsicles <laughs> somewhere? You know, I'm not sure if they survived. I think they did have to retrieve the capsule, though, to get the electrode data. So one or the other, the frogs came back to Earth. But regardless of whether they survived, they were probably euthanized 
uh, because what kind of a life is it for a frog to, you know, just be suspended in water and uh, <laughs> with all these electrodes sticking out of you? Uh, not, Maybe not they great. got to listen to podcasts, you know, that wouldn't hey, make it so bad. Yeah, if you're a frog in space <laughs> in some kind of secret experiment, thanks for listening. Uh, and <laughs> Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> So there is one more organism I want to talk about, uh, but the fact that it's going to be orbiting the Earth is perhaps the least interesting part about it. And so when we return, we're going to be talking about the blob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. So, Daniel, let's talk about the space blob. <laughs> space blob of what? Frog vomit or something else? <laughs> it's just the space blob, period. So, oh. earlier in the episode, I teased that we're not going to be only talking about animals. Mm. Uh, so, most recently, uh, so relatively recently, we uh, sent, wait, no, sorry, this so we are currently sending a rather different organism into space. It is a slime mold called Physarum polycephalum, uh, which is a slime mold known colloquially as the blob. It, that's like the actual name that researchers often refer it to. It's, uh, it's the blob. Um, Do they have blob conferences and blob meetings? <laughs> we need to discuss the blob. It's becoming <laughs> urgent. So this thing is not an animal, it's not a fungus, it's not a bacteria, and it's not a plant. It mm. is a eukaryote, like humans and plants and animals, uh, but it is a protist. So a protist is any eukaryote that's neither an animal, plant, or fungus, which is kind of circular logic, isn't it? Mm. It's like, It's a catch-all. Right, right, what is, it's just the miscellaneous bin of animals. Or actually, no, it's the miscellaneous bin of non-animals that are not plants or fungus, but they are eukaryotes, which, you know, 
And uh, they must have other things in common with each other, right? They can't only be defined by not being something else. That's kind of how it is, actually. Wow. They are not necessarily always related that closely. Like there might be some that are more closely related, but there might be some that are like more closely related to animals or more closely related to plants or to fungus. But they just, why, what they share in common is the lack of being an animal, a fungus or a plant, which, you know, mm. when you think about it, sometimes the strongest friend groups are just made based on what you dislike and not what you like. <laughs> <laughs> you get together and all complain about the same TV show. Yeah, you get together and complain about, man, all these animals and plants and, and uh, <laughs> fungus just watching Friends reruns. It's not even that good. It's not that funny. They just wanted to be invited, really. They're just bitter. <laughs> Put us in our own little group of misfits. We'll show you. <laughs> so are slime mold connected to anything else? Or they have any like weird other evolutionary cousins? Or are they like on their own, the only things like them? on earth they're kind of on their own and even weirder like a slime mold is not again like necessarily all closely related to each other it's kind of like when we talk about fish where you know we call a lot of things fish uh but a f one fish might be more closely related to humans than it is to another fish it's a similar case with slime molds mm. uh they can often look pretty similar or behave somewhat similarly, but sometimes they're just not very related at all. They're just kind of this like catch-all thing of like, eh, it's weird and slimy and kind of looks like a mold, but we don't know. Uh, so the blob, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. So the blob, let's get back to the blob. We gotta talk about the blob, very important to talk about the blob. What does the blob look like? Kind of looks like a yellow splat. <laughs> you say in the most flattering terms possible <laughs> it is like a ball of goo that you forcefully threw down on the ground and kind of splattered all over the place uh so it is like a goop that has these branching yellow veins coming out of the goo uh yeah it looks it looks looks good looks cool it, it looks like a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> looks a little bit like neon barf. Um, and aside from living, that, crawling neon barf. Living neon barf. Uh, and other than that, it's also very strange, very uh, weird organism. Uh, so during uh, one stage of its life cycle, it is actually an acellular organism which means that instead of dividing into multiple cells as it grows, it's just one big goopy expanding cell. Uh, with so it doesn't have like cell walls or little not, organelles or anything? Well, it has organelles, but it does not have cell walls at that stage in its life cycle. Wow. It has cell walls at different stages in its life cycle, which I have tried to study this thing's like life cycle. I've looked at diagrams. I It's... It's difficult. It's a doozy. There's like multiple branching circles that happen. And I'm not sure I fully understand it. I'm going to be very candid. I, I, it's it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, but it I'm going to turn your brain into a blob. huh? It's turning my brain into a blob. This is how it reproduces. It just turns your brain into a blob. Um, <laughs> but it's so, going viral because now you're turning all your <laughs> listeners brains into blobs. We all become blob. I guess it's better than carcinization where we all become crabs. Welcome to the blob, chill. everyone. <laughs> Welcome but I to have the blob. more questions about how they work. Like, do they have DNA or any yes. sort of like nucleus? Yes. In fact, they have many nucleuses all floating around inside just a big old party. It's how they, do they make decisions. Yeah. So they have one, it's one big expanding cell with these like branch. You, you see this blob that's one cell, and then even its branching veins that are coming off of it, that's all part of the same cell, just kind of expanding and growing. And it's got multiple nucleuses uh, inside of it instead of having just one nucleus. So, you know, and these nucleuses are full of genetic material and they can all start to uh, grow and use this genetic material as building blocks at different parts of the cell. So that's why it's like a goose bladder that just keeps growing and branching out. Um, and I guess that's why it's called the blob. And aren't they also like really hard to kill? Like they're really hardy objects, aren't they? Yeah, I, I 
think so, because basically if you uh, chop off part of the blob, there's more blob that still has uh, <laughs> genetic material inside of it. Uh, so it, it is interesting in that slime molds are often kind of, they may look similar, but they function differently. So um, like I said, slime molds are sort of a catch-all term for weird eukaryotes that are kind of unclassifiable. They're not always related to each other, but uh, often slime molds are actually unicellular organisms that have teamed up into a big ball of individual organisms that are working together to form a single aggregate. So, uh, you know, it's like, it's similar to, you know, as a human, we are a bunch of cells all working together, but we're much more organized, whereas a slime mold are a bunch of unicellular organisms that sometimes work together, sometimes they'll even form like a slug that kind of moves in unison, but ultimately they're all in it for themselves. Mm. So, but on the other hand, uh, the blob uh, is just one big cell. And so uh, it's, th this is just incredibly weird. It's, there are large unicellular organisms, but the blob is weird in that it's like, it has these multiple nucleuses and it kind of just oozes outwards and it has a kind of weird, spooky intelligence that arises from the ability to use these multiple nucleuses to grow and expand in multiple directions. Uh, so it can learn the fastest path to grow towards food. Keep in mind, this has no brain. It has no nerves. We'd have, it doesn't really have sensory organs. Uh, so how it is able to find the fastest, most efficient path towards food is really weird and kind of freaky. It's like solving an optimization problem. It's like a little distributed computer. Yes. In fact, it is often considered as a candidate to build a biocomputer because it can be trained to be used as a logic gate because it is so efficient at moving from, you know, one particle of food to the next. Uh, researchers in Japan created like a miniature uh, uh, Tokyo where they mm -hmm. used oat flakes to represent like different cities, different like uh, locations. And uh, they put the slime mold on it and it grew out its weird goopy tendrils to each of the oat flakes. I guess they love oat flakes. I don't know. Very healthy blob. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it would grow out and they showed that this network of expanding tubular structures coming out of this one blobby cell was so efficient. It was similar to how city planning works in terms of mm. designing subway lines and transit lines. So we should have the blob design our public transport? Look, I'm sorry to break it to you, urban planners, but the blob's coming for your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely need an improvement in our urban planning here in Southern California. Uh, we basically have no public transport. So bring on the blob. Bring on the blob. But yeah, it is really, it's like kind of spooky how intelligent they are. Because again, it's not like a consciousness. There's no nervous system. There's no brain. Uh, it's not even like with ants where, you know, each of the ants have their own little tiny brain and they kind of work together using pheromones so they kind of have this emergent intelligence coming out of an ant colony that kind of makes some sense but something like this blob that has uh you know it doesn't have sensory organs like animals do they must be doing it in some other way so one theory is maybe energy conservation like it somehow is optimized towards the most efficient kind of energy path um there may be some like chemical process that is happening on the surface of the the the, the blob cell and that allows it to grow towards food. It is really weird, really uh, mysterious, and I'm not sure that there's a definitive answer yet. And does the blob have any predators? Like, why hasn't the blob just taken over the world by now? It's a good question. I doubt it tastes very good. In fact... <laughs> It might not be uh, super palatable. 
Uh, mm. So that's that's one method of of survival is to just be super disgusting. That's what that's my strategy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just don't shower, don't make an effort, and people will avoid you. That's um, right. People leave me alone anyway because I'm a physicist. But this is just like a second layer of protection. <laughs> so uh, somehow, though, despite it being a disgusting splat, it does undergo sexual fusion with one another, which means there's hope for us all. So they can form a plasmodium, which is what we've been talking about. That is the blob we know and love. That's this one big cell, one big happy mess of uh, nucleuses and and cytoplasm and goo and growing out and eating oat flakes. But this is only one stage of its many stages of its life cycle that it can go through. So... uh, it can actually, it starts out as a spore, which the plasmodium, that the blob, can grow a fruiting body and send out spores and make more of these horrifying things. And so the spore stage actually does have a hard cell wall, and it can lie dormant until conditions are favorable. And then after that, it has an amoeba stage with a flexible, permeable membrane instead of a cell wall. Are these dormant spores, can they like hang out for, you know, a hundred years, a thousand years, just sort of like waiting for the right moment? They can wait a good amount of time. I'm not sure it's thousands or hundreds of years, but it's definitely on the order of years. Well, I actually once had a listener to our podcast send me a slime mold. Because I speculated on air about whether there are creatures that could have distributed intelligence. Because we were talking, of course, about aliens. And one of our listeners was like, you need to meet a slime mold. I can send you one. And I was like, <laughs> send me a slime mold. And so he did. And he sent us a bunch. And my wife is a microbiologist. Who's a microbiologist. She grew it. And it turned into this disgusting yellow Oh, splat. God. Uh, then we had to figure out, like, what to do with it. Because you can't just throw it in the garbage. It would, like, take over the garbage. Did, uh, did you try to eat it? <laughs> we did not try to this eat it. This is my point. This is my point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so even weirder, like if they develop into these amoebas and it turns out life kind of sucks, they can revert back into a spore. So, wow. and then go lie dormant again for X amount of time and then come back out and become an amoeba again. Very cool. And uh, they can be mobile with a flagella or ditch the flagella and just do sexual fusion to become the uh, plasmodium. And uh, yeah, and then there's other branches to its life cycle that I'm going to be honest with you. I got a little bit lost. It's very twisty turny. Uh, Very, very strange. And like, like you said, very, uh, it's got a lot of qualities. That means it's a real survivor. So, and it's got this spooky emergent intelligence. So, of course, we're going to shoot it into space and see what happens. <laughs> see if space will reject it. <laughs> Spit it back at us. What are you doing sending me this garbage? <laughs> or maybe welcome its return. Maybe the slime molds don't hey. look like anything else on Earth because they're not from Earth. Yeah, this was its plan all along. Just be so weird and <laughs> gross right. that we send it back home. We're throwing it back into the briar patch, huh? (laughs) So, of course, France is shooting it into space. They love their weird cheeses. They love their weird mold on cheeses. So I guess they like their weird slime molds. So it is going on to the International Space Station to study. Uh, And then on Earth, French school students are going to be following the progress of the blob uh, and studying it while researchers on the International Space Station are studying it. Which just sounds like the perfect intro to like a science fiction horror apocalypse alien takeover thing where it's like, oh, these school students, they're just these cute little French students wearing their little berets are studying the slime mold with these astronauts and they've got some kind of on their iPads, they see a live feed and then suddenly just mold comes into view and then you hear screaming and then silence. (laughs) Biology is always so cute and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Until until you've got something that looks like a yellow barf uh, trying to grow on the International Space Station. So <laughs> how have we not had that movie yet? Slime molds take over the space station. Really, I don't I mean, know. it's just it's so cinematic. These ideas, these concepts. Listen, scriptwriters, get to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it. 
they are trying to find out whether how they respond to low gravity. So does it grow like it does on Earth, where it's just kind of a, a splatter? Uh, or could it grow into columns? Uh, or maybe it grows into the brains of astronauts, and then they return home, and they're like, yes, I am normal. I return from space so very human and so very normal. I am not blob. <laughs> hey, have you heard about blob? It's pretty cool. <laughs> Everyone's joining blob. See, humans come back, and then they are the union representation for the blob. See, speaking for the blob. Everybody <laughs> needs representation. <laughs> Listen, join our blob union. Here's my card. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. I guess now you're part of the blob. Blobs of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your cell walls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, I think that about does it for the animals that we've shot into space that are probably going to form like an army and attack us any day now. Uh, but before we go, I do need to reveal the animal behind last week's mystery sound. Oh, my gosh. And so I've decided to call this segment Guess Who's Talking," which I think works. If anyone has a better idea for the name of this game, send it in. Um, but to refresh your memory, let me play the mystery sound from last week. Can I guess what it sounds like? Yes, you can. It sounds to me like a frog in suspended... <clears throat> it sounds to me like a frog that's had its arms severed, suspended in water, <laughs> and forced to undergo crazy accelerations. <laughs> I, I, have, I have no arms and I must scream. Uh, very good guess. Very good guess. Uh, unfortunately incorrect. But... There are some winners of this contest who guessed correctly the incognito animal. Ooh. So, uh, actually, I've got two winners because they wrote in at like ex almost exactly the same time. Uh, Thomas Crone and Jared Miller, who both guessed sage grouse. Congratulations. And runner up is Affection Confection on Twitter. Great job, you guys. I thought I started out with a real head scratcher, a real tough one. And uh, you've absolutely blown my mind with how good you are at guessing sounds. The greater sage grouse, which you have heard, which apparently sounds like a frog orbiting the earth in distress, is actually a ground dwelling bird found in sagebrush plains in the US and Canada. These weird calls are mating noises that the sage grouse makes in a designated mating area called a lek. So the males put on a big show for the females. They, they inflate their neck sacs, which are called gular pouches. They strut around with their tails fanned out, and then they make this extremely bizarre noise, apparently to attract the females. Well, it is a strange noise, and I guess if I was a female grouse, I would find it attractive. I'm not really sure. What's yeah. it like to be a female grouse? Nobody knows. I mean, it sounds rough to me, honestly. <laughs> so, uh, of course, now we are going to play round two of Guess Who's Talking. Uh, so here is our next mystery sound contender, and a hint... This is a conversation between two Canadians. This is so freaking cool. <laughs> so, Daniel, <Wow. laughs> who do you think is talking in that video? Uh, that sounds like the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. <laughs> I don't know. You I got no it. Idea. <laughs> Game over. No. Now write in with your guesses to creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, creaturefeatpod on Twitter, that's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T, or creaturefeaturepod on Instagram. You can also write in any questions that you have. Animal questions, send me pictures of your pets. Uh, concerns that the slime mold has already invaded uh, your brain if you're starting to feel like you want to become a blob. That's one sign of it. Uh, and I'm afraid it's probably too late for you, but you can still write in while you have control <laughs> of your body. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. Uh, what what is your favorite uh, animal that we shot into space? <laughs> I'm definitely pro blob. Uh, mostly because I think the blob has the best chance of eventually taking over the Earth. So I'm just sort of making a Pascal's wager yeah. here and figuring if the blob listens to this podcast, I'm going to get some points for collaborating early yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, you're hedging your bets. I, I, I mm-hmm. think that's pretty smart. Uh, we love the blob, don't we, folks? We sure love the blob. <laughs> the benevolent blob. Uh, but thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show uh, and you have a minute to spare, if you can leave me a rating or a review, it really helps. I read all of them, and I uh, it always makes my day when I get a review and I can hear your feedback. And, of course, thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just, the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.